Hi, I'm Laura Hayes, and welcome to our Texas Family Law Podcast. This is part two of our series with Dr. Ryan Malfers of Delphi Litigation Strategies, explaining to us the effective use of a jury consultant for trial preparation, as well as witness training from the very outset of a case. Welcome back, Ryan. Have you had to, since COVID and learning how to operate in the new world where it's on Zoom or on video, have you had to change the way you work with clients to prepare them for testimony or being in the courtroom? Is it, is it, is it all the same or is it different? Uh, it's very different. Um, one of the factors that we have really been working on is that my partner, Kevin, uh, used to work in a television studio. And so while, you know, in March when everything shut down and we were sitting around talking about what the next steps needed to be, we spent some time putting together online mock trials and getting those set up. He also said, well, in the Zoom space, everybody's giving these terrible Zoom presentations and these terrible Zoom calls and their background's terrible and where the camera's sitting's terrible and their lighting's terrible. And so he, he put together this kit that for, you know, it's around three to $400 that we recommend to all of our witnesses who are going through an online deposition now, or even attorneys who are giving an online deposition now to be able to have a green screen or to be able to have a professional background and helping them with this process. Because if it was hard to train a witness in person, it is even more challenging to do over Zoom. It requires far more time. It requires technical expertise now. It requires equipment that an individual may need. It may require them to actually go to an office environment to rent so that they have a professional quiet space. Uh, I mean, we've had you know billion-dollar cases during this time that our main you know our main witness is is testifying via Zoom in their kitchen, and their kids are are walking around in their background, or their spouse is getting you know juice out of the fridge, and it it doesn't look professional. And I think what if I could offer kind of any guidance, professional guidance for you all, it's you all are this Zoom situation environment is going to continue. But make sure that you are appearing professional, that you have a professional background, that you're the height, that the lighting, that the audio, you have everything you need. It's not expensive. Um, you just need to put together the right components to put yourself in the best light, uh, no pun intended, but to, to really make sure that you're coming off as best as you possibly can because so many of your peers are not taking that step and it will differentiate you from your competitors, from your colleagues, and elevate you to a place where you've got far greater respect from those on the Zoom platform than uh, than you would without and, and having your kitchen background or in an informal environment where we're typically conducting these Zoom um, training sessions or calls or depositions or hearings even. Right, I think that goes back to what you said a few minutes ago about it's a race to credibility. Having these, uh, the testimony, whether it's a trial or hearing, on Zoom adds an extra layer of credibility. If you're, like you said, if you're in your kitchen, the judge isn't as inclined to think that you're taking it as seriously, or you might have an inappropriate background that you don't even realize is there because you think it's just a small screen that shows your face, wherein, you know, your coffee cup with a funny saying is in the background and the judge focuses on that and judges makes makes a judgment of you based on a coffee cup or, you know, something along those lines. So it, it adds an extra layer layer to your well, something even worse that you don't even anticipate is the, the, the notebook that you sent your witness to review for documents that are going to be coming up in the case, right? They may write notes on them and have them there during the deposition that's going on. 
and not realizing that they're not supposed to have them there and then opposing counsel can subpoena the very documents that they're looking at and so now your your entire trial strategy has been revealed to the other side that's devastating and it's something that many people don't realize and so we do what are called tech checks before um, a hearing or before a deposition where we check in with a witness and we check in with our attorneys and we have the witness literally show us what is on their desk with their camera what is on the space because we have had clients who even we've said you cannot have anything in front of you they'll say okay and then sure enough they they didn't realize that oh the notebook of all of my notes and whatnot yeah that that's that's there too and um, I didn't think that that was relevant well it is and that can suddenly be subpoenaed by opposing counsel and it has in some cases I mean it's it's led to a very crazy scenario where you know key strategy notebooks have been subpoenaed by opposing counsel because the witness had it right there in the deposition right and that's something that you know attorneys have had to adjust to as well I mean we're if we're in the same room with our clients we know what they're looking at or not looking at but you never know what clients are doing from their comfort of their own homes and you're right I mean big documents could be right there and if opposing counsel sees them that's I mean it's huge if, yeah. if, if we're not prepared and we don't prepare our clients so you know it's having someone like you to notice those things in addition to preparing the client is very helpful to the case overall because again I mean we're still lawyers we're still trying to you know, we have to pre- learn the the strategies of presenting our cases on Zoom because that's even harder. Cross examining a witness is very different on Zoom than it is in the courtroom, Absolutely. especially when you're juggling documents. Trying, well, see page four. No, where's page four? And it, I mean, it takes away a lot of the the impact sometimes. So, having the clients really prepared and know the the pros and cons of Zoom <laughs> and how that can really affect your case because I think Zoom, at least on a certain level, is here to stay for litigation. Um, I think courts are obviously opening back up in most states and we're going to go back to in-person trials, but a a lot of the judges are doing hybrid methods where they're going to have some of their hearings on Zoom and some of them in person. And so I think our clients need to know that that's a possibility and be prepared for both. And because some judges will change it last minute too. Yeah. and, And I think that's where a little bit of practice actually becomes an advantage for some attorneys and and I mentioned this because I'm seeing it more and more with one firm that I'm working with in particular and that he's a you know he's an attorney in his, in his early 60s and he has learned how to quickly move through documents in Zoom mm-hmm. in ways that overwhelms the actual witness and so he's walking them through line by line and he has everything so well organized that he's using the cognitive momentum of not only the admissions, but the documents to gain admissions from witnesses that they probably never would have given if they had physical documents in front of them. And so he's sort of using the magic of Zoom and the technology of it to overwhelm the witness. And it's it's an amazing tactic. And it's one that I would kind of encourage some of the attorneys to think about because the, the prevailing view is it's harder to cross a witness. I don't disagree with that, I think it is. But I think there's another advantage that we're seeing that you all can leverage, which is the cognitive momentum and the mastery of evidence to quickly move through it overwhelms witnesses in ways that that they're not accustomed to as well. Um, And for whatever reason, because they're not seeing the person there next to them or in front of them, they're more willing to agree and rely and trust that individual because they're not able to keep up with it. 
Right. So there's a weird there, there's a weird power dynamic that is also occurring that I think attorneys can sort of leverage for their benefit that that we're beginning to recognize too. That's an interesting point. I think it's very important because I th- you know I don't I don't know how this will all play out, but I assume that judges are no longer going to make witnesses from out of town come in town for trial, and they're going to allow more of this online testimony, um, especially if, I mean, obviously, I think the parties are still going to have to be in person if it's an in-person trial, but if you have a multi-jurisdictional case and you have witnesses in multiple cities, I think the judges are going to allow kind of a hybrid model, and so being well aware, both from the, the witness perspective, if you're the one being examined, and knowing that that's a tactic of trying to hurry through documents, and teaching the, the witnesses to kind of take a deep breath and relax, and also teaching the attorneys how to do that so that we can take advantage of the witnesses, you know, going through the documents faster. But add another layer to that, right? Which is, is your Wi-Fi connection strong enough? Is your lighting good enough? Is your laptop fast enough to pull up these documents? I mean, there's a new technical area that we're seeing failures at that you, that we didn't really encounter before, right? right? I mean, Case in point, there there's sometimes that Wi-Fi just fails on you, <laughs> right? Um, and you have and it, and you want to have a hardwired connection. Uh, there's times in which, but you want to learn that early, right? If you need to get a hundred foot Ethernet cable and you need it because your your uh, your witness is in rural Kansas and doesn't have great Wi-Fi and they're better to have it com- directly tied into their broadband network, we'll learn that in advance because when you're in a a fifty million dollar case and the and the hearing drops. They're testifying, and the jury's going, "What's happening?" That's on you, the attorney. That reflects on your credibility and how the jury is evaluating you and is evaluating your witness. And it's an unfortunate and avoidable situation, but because it's new, we don't always know about these. So the more we can plan, the more we can get out in front of it, the better off you, your credibility with the jurors, the better off the witness's credibility is going to be. But there's kind of all these technological aspects that we're not thinking about as well that's really important to, to consider. Yeah, that is a good point. I mean, because if your if computer crashes, your Wi-Fi doesn't work, and you call in on your phone, it's a completely different look, and it's a completely different feel. And It, it may not be admissible. Right? right. I mean, we were in federal court, and we had to make sure everything went smoothly. And it, it's not, you know, there's no room for failure when opposing counsel has mailed you sealed documents and you have to open them on camera and there are certain time limits that were held to within certain federal jurisdictions and if the clock's running and and the feed goes out well your clock's running and the jury is not appreciating you wasting their time and they're not appreciating what's happened to the witness and now the witness is frazzled and there's a lot that that on the technology side that I think we've been able to help, which is calming things down, smoothing out, and making sure that this is a good, viable, solid, safe process kind of going forward. Right. And I I mean, I think this goes to the overall perspective of going to court, whether it's in the beginning of the case or the big multi-billion dollar jury trial, it's all about preparation from different angles. I mean, the attorneys are focused on, okay, these are the pieces of evidence that I need to get in with each witness, witness, and this is my story, but the clients have to be just as prepared for what's coming at them from the entire perspective, how they're going to testify when their attorney's talking to them, how they're going to testify when they're being cross-examined, and what do they do if they're, how do, how do they keep their composure if something happens? If they lose their Wi-Fi, what do they do? So planning from the whole, it's not just how do I attack my spouse? Right. There's a, I mean, so many different angles to look at that I, I, a lot of 
litigants don't realize when you when you're going to trial or going into the courtroom. Yeah, I mean, it, it's already the courtroom is already probably the most challenging environment to try to communicate and message in for a witness. Um, it direct has its challenges. Cross has even greater challenges, and so knowing how to deflect kind of opposing counsel's arguments and how to still be responsive, um, how to admit your errors, how to own kind of any of your wrongs, and then be able to, to communicate those either get in front of them on direct or, or clean them up on redirect is a very strange process. But now you overlay that with the technology challenges and it becomes even more complicated. Right. We have uh, a client that we're working with now who uh, has only 15% of her hearing. Hmm. and is having to testify via Zoom because she can't travel. She's unable to travel. Wow. And so now we're dealing with transcription process and and how the delay that's involved there, in addition to how the documents are being communicated. It's incredibly challenging. I bet. I And I understand not from that perspective, but I've had interpreters. I had a client who was in another country mm-hmm. appear on Zoom, and then the interpreter is on Zoom here, and there's delay anyway, but there's extra delay when you have to your your client testifies then the interpreter has to and it just it creates a lot of people talking over each other in which case you know either the client or the court reporter miss a whole lot so it's preparing for those types of issues as well um that's definitely a different challenge i mean there's always a challenge when you have you know interpreters or different unique aspects but having it on zoom or video is even more difficult yeah, and I think we're going to see that for the next, you know, at least five years as, as COVID kind of runs its course internationally um, and the vaccines are slow to roll out in some areas and faster in others. And, you know, this is going to be a continued issue um, for some time. And so I think attorneys are just going to have to begin adapting to it as well and, um, and finding out how to leverage it for their purposes because it's not, it's not only... A shortcoming. There's there's an advantage there as well, but you have to be able to recognize it and be able to use it for your advantage. Right, and these are things I, I think that just emphasize how important it is to get you involved from the very beginning. Because you know, again, if the clients come to us, they want to tell us their whole story. They want us to prepare the entire case, and there's only so much we can do, right? I mean, we have to prepare the case, we have to get the evidence ready, and we have to subpoena the witness and all this. But someone like you can add the the balancing act to help the clients prepare for all of these other angles that you know, wouldn't necessarily, if you just have the one attorney or a few attorneys, depending on the case, involved, that you can point out all of these different other areas that need to be looked at. And if you come in with the entire team, having worked with the clients and prepared for this, I I mean, it's so, there's such a huge difference in the presentation when you're involved versus, you know, the cases where you're not. Well, and even, you know, you as attorneys are so overwhelmed by the facts sometimes, right? And, and getting the motions filed and getting the evidence ready. And there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of mechanical sides that you all handle in your, in your daily work. And it's hard for you to sometimes see above that fray. And so what, what I really like to do is also spend time with you all working on compelling narratives, right? How do we tell the story of this case? How do we get this to be something that the judge appreciates as a, as a human being? Because I think sometimes attorneys think that judges are uh, automatons and, and just kind of spit out rulings as they come, but they really are human. Um, and jurors are really human too. And so how do we need to weave our message with our witnesses to be able to connect with the judge? Uh, or how do we need to admit wrongdoing when that was there and be able to ask for forgiveness or to say you're sorry or to show that you're, you've 
uh, turned a new leaf and, and you're, you're somebody who's different now. Um, and all of that is, is difficult to focus on when there's a flurry of motions and challenges that are coming at you. But that's also where I really try to work with you all is, is what's the narrative? How are we going to tell this story? What evidence do we have to be able to back this up? And there, there are two, two different types of narratives. One is what is our persuasive narrative, but what's our counter narrative for opposing counsel? How do we frame them? How do we frame the opposing party as somebody who's a threat to the children or somebody who's a threat to their spouse or somebody who uh, doesn't deserve X, Y, and Z or who, uh, who wasted money? There are, there are multiple narratives within every case, but how do we develop those? How do we use them for both offensive and defensive purposes is a really critical component as well. And oftentimes we learn that many times through the times that I spend with witnesses when I'm learning kind of these new personal stories or these new personal narratives to kind of say, hey, here's something new and we can storyboard it and whiteboard it to make sure that it's part of the information that you're able to communicate to the, to the judge or to the jury. Right, putting all the pieces of the puzzle together mm-hmm. in the most persuasive manner, and you can help with, you know, the opening statements and the cross or the closing statements. And then, if you're in trial with us, you were so busy making sure that we're objecting as appropriately or getting through the te- the questions we need for our witness. You can have a different perspective because you can watch from a psychological perspective the body language or a shifting in a seat that we don't. We're focused on the witness and what they're saying and you can notice all of these other things from the psychological perspective that can completely change the way the trial goes too. Absolutely and and sometimes even during breaks it's a good time for me to grab a witness and say listen you know you're not coming across the way that we want you to or sometimes to the attorney hey the questions you're asking are not effective they're not landing with the jury you're coming off flat you need to make sure that you're connecting this uh, there, there's a real, again, there's a theater to this. And sometimes uh, attorneys forget that there's this process that's going on, but you have, you have an audience and this audience needs to understand your message. What is that message? How do we show it in the most effective light and the most persuasive light? Uh, and that's a really important component. Right, absolutely. And I think you, you made a good point early on. We're talking about how involved you are, and I think some of our clients think, oh my gosh, I'm paying my attorney this huge hourly rate already, or multiple attorneys, and having you involved is going to get so much more expensive. But it doesn't necessarily have to. Because like you said, getting starting out early on can help the case settle. And if you're involved through the entire rate, having you involved at the trial can, again, point out, make the case go a completely different direction if you're pointing out that the witness isn't doing the things that you had trained them to do or, you know, the attorneys, like you said, questions aren't coming across as effectively as we thought. So, I mean, having you involved can change in a lot of ways and is definitely worth it. Yeah. And there's some, there's some clients who will come to us and they'll say, this client has X amount um, and and what can we do? And we'll kind of lay out a game plan and we'll meet with the client and, and kind of talk through them. But they need to be kind of aware of the most pressing issues to where we can be the most effective. And then in the gear up towards trial, you know, let's talk about just getting them through the temporary orders hearing um, the, and the mediation and or the deposition. What's that gonna look like? Um, then let's talk about as we're headed towards trial, what is the testimony gonna look like? Do we need graphics, right? Do you need a graphics person to come in and put together a timeline? Do you need them to highlight uh, geographical locations and movement between those locations? I mean, there's, there's very simple ways that you can make this an easy process. Um, but oftentimes, giving the client the option 
to even meet with us or talk with us about our involvement can be very beneficial just so that they can then say yes or no or here's what I'm willing to spend now and that's perfectly fine. Um, but don't necessarily take away that choice from the client just because you're assuming that they're a polished professional or just because you're assuming that they're not going to want to do that. Um, you know, let them let them have kind of the strategic advantage if they want it. Absolutely. I think that's something we talked about too is now that we're doing these hybrid methods of uh, being on Zoom, a lot of the judges are posting it on their YouTube or making it publicly available. And so, I mean, courtrooms have always been publicly available unless, you know, special circumstances. But now that it's broadcast for anyone in the world to see, I think it's even more important how you present yourself. I mean, you have the big CEO who might have something really cool against his spouse and, you know, wants to slam them in court. But that may not come across when they when their colleagues or their business um, competitors see the way they presented themselves in the courtroom, it might affect them professionally as well. And I don't think a lot of our clients think about that part of it. Yeah, or, or conversely, what if what if that CEO um, has something that's incredibly embarrassing? And right. how do they own that? Or if they start arguing with opposing counsel and they come off as jerks, how is that going to impact them? Um, I think you raise a really interesting point that we haven't... we we have oftentimes been in the position of how do I embarrass my spouse, Mm -hmm. right? You know, skewer them on the stand. I want them, you know, so embarrassed for what they've done, make me feel good about this process as a client. And this takes now it to a very different level where you have the theatrics of, you know what, we're going to capture all of this on YouTube and I'm going to post it to all of his, his or her professional, um, uh, groups that they belong to and associations, and this is going to this is going to destroy his career as well. And that that presents kind of a very different um, component now with these Zoom trials and, mm-hmm. and pe- people being able to capture and then replay them on YouTube. Now, I will say this: the the trials that I have been involved in that are being streamed, there's a prohibition on recording. Right. right? So there. That offers a layer of protection because judges don't generally like for for that for those rules to be thwarted, um, but it also isn't a, a failsafe. Right? It's definitely not. I mean, you never know who's watching yeah. or who's recording, and that may be hard to prove if a random stranger posts the recording. Tracing it back may be very difficult. You know, it's well, and if you have somebody who's outside the jurisdiction of the United States, right, right, then that can be you know challenging as well. So. Uh, I think there's a host of, of, of implications <laughs> in kind of this new world that we're facing. But in the family law space, it is, uh, it, it's even more perilous, it seems like to me. Definitely. It's a little bit scary yeah. when, you, when we talk about it this way. <laughs> <laughs> our, our, our parade of horribles, right, as right. we kind of move through this. So, yeah, it's, um, it, it's, it's interesting to see how, how things are going to change and how things are going to go back to the same. Absolutely. Yeah. Ryan, we've talked a lot about um, prepping someone on how they're going to speak, but what about how they're going to, you know, act, their mannerisms, mm-hmm. and how they're going to dress? And it's one thing for us to tell our client, don't wear a revealing shirt or don't wear your bright red lipstick, but it, coming from you, I feel like you could address it in a better way. So if you could just kind of touch on how you address those things. 
Yeah, it, it is, uh, as somebody who is an academic that then stepped into the jury consulting space, uh, my sartorial choices were not the greatest to begin with, and I was never that concerned about fashion, but it became <laughs> something that, again and again, uh, clients express an anxiety of what do I need to wear, and there's a prevailing theory uh, of there's a prevailing theory about color and what colors are, are better to wear. And so we talk with the witnesses a little bit about that, but ultimately it's coming down to um, how that attire is reflecting them as people within a professional environment, right? Because if, if you all have seen a courtroom, it, it is very much kind of the structure of a church. And so jurors see it as a sacred space, judges see it as a sacred space, uh, there's a chancel railing, there are pews, there are places for the important guests like jurors and judges and witnesses to sit. And so it very much follows the architecture of an actual church um, in many respects. And so um, when you are able to explain to them, here's what you need to wear um, within certain professional areas of, of performance, that begins kind of setting into place. But there, there are many witnesses I have who want me to pick out their outfits. And so I will generally, you know, with the attorney, be copied in on various messages of here are my outfits, mm -hmm. what should I wear, here are my combination of suits and ties. And the reason that that is, you know, we, we kind of laugh of, oh, that's, that's so silly, but it's amazing how much that calms a witness down, male or female, if they know on Monday I just need to put this suit on. Or I need I to put this dress on. Or, you know, on Wednesday, I'm going to wear this. Uh, and I think it was Barack Obama who would have one, you know, the same suit that he would wear with different ties every time to reduce the decision making that he would have to make each day. And I thought, uh, I thought that was a really interesting tactic. I'm not sure that I would take the same approach, but it, it speaks to how even the extraordinary get... Uh, overwhelmed by the daily choices and if you can just take that choice away from them uh, it can make it that much easier and you shouldn't assume that somebody's going to show up in a uh, in professional attire I had a, a surgeon that I was working with in Indiana and the gentleman showed up to jury selection and this was July and he showed up in jury selection with a Santa Claus uh, tie with uh, with jingle jingle bells on it and I was horrified right? right and he thought that this was very humorous but as a surgeon whose credibility was on the line this was not the professional attire that I that, that this was not the professional message you want to send to the jury on the first day of jury selection so I had to take my tie off <laughs> give it to him and I had to pick a jury with this Santa Claus <laughs> tie on with jingle bells on it right or I had another client who, who flew in from India and he had packed his favorite suit that he was gonna wear. And this guy was our expert. He was, uh, he was very critical to the case. And he shows up and, and I, with this one firm, I work with every single witness before they take the stand. And so I went to go meet with him and he pulls out this suit and he says, I have the most fabulous suit that I'm gonna wear. And he holds it up and it is eggplant in color and it's silk and it's completely wrinkled. Oh no. And he's and he's going to be testifying in two days. And I turned to him and I was like, You are not wearing that. I'm sorry, you're not wearing that in small town Texas in federal court. This right. is not this is not happening. And so I had to send 
he and the secretary to go to a nearby town and pick out a suit for him that was gray, dark in color, a blue shirt, a red tie, and, and was professional in appearance. But those are, are very critical <laughs> discussions <laughs> yeah. to have, and you shouldn't take them for granted because sometimes even our witnesses that live in the professional space or live in an everyday environment in which certain attire is acceptable, that attire is not acceptable in the courtroom. And I do feel like in the Zoom space, it's become, you know, someone wakes up, they're going to testify from their kitchen, and they don't think about putting on something professional and think about all the people that they're going to see. Yeah. So I have seen some of our witnesses (laughs) and, you know, like, that's not going to work tomorrow. You know, let's address this now. So... Have you seen anything different in the Zoom space about? So we have, we have not, but we address that kind of immediately. So we don't we don't make those assumptions. We address it kind of up front. But you see, kind of all these reports of kind of the weather the weatherman that didn't have his pants on, right? <laughs> right. The right. you know the 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 top down performance that uh, that for some reason they forget to put clothes on. Um, and obviously, it's an intentional decision. But you want. They're, they're making that decision because they're not seeing it as a professional space. Right. And so you have to make sure that they're still seeing it uh, and treating it as a, as a professional space. And it's hard to do that when something is occurring in your living room or, or in a bedroom or a closet. Or uh, it, it's, it's just a very difficult um, mind frame to get in that you think you can get away with, with casual attire um, from the waist down. And that's not always that's not acceptable. Right. When it goes back to the whole your whole presentation too. I've had cases where we're going to the courthouse and somebody's trying to say they don't have any money and they show up in their Porsche, Ferrari, Lamborghini, and the juror that they don't know is going to be on the jury is parked right next to them and sees them. I mean, it's the whole demeanor of the entire day. It's that can affect every little aspect, and it's not something that can be you know. You have to plan. You have to prepare. You can't just think about it. Oh, I forgot to tell them not to drive their Porsche today. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to, the clients don't think about it. We have to think about it and help them with that and say, hey, you never know if that guy or girl in the elevator is going to be on your jury. You may want to behave properly from the second you leave your house that day. I mean, it's the whole presentation. Yeah, we call it the the jury face. The the first thing you do when you look in the mirror in the morning is you put on your jury face. And Mm -hmm. that's because... You never know if you uh, if you step out onto the road and, and you're driving, who's next to you, who's not, what they're seeing. We had a, we had a situation where um, we were in Fort Worth and the our attorney had been um, running behind, and so he had cut off a car and he had thrown an inappropriate signal, um, and he remembered the car, and it turned out to be a juror, a potential juror in our pool. And so we had to burn a strike on that individual because we weren't going to risk <laughs> right. uh, somebody seeing uh, opposing counsel. And they recognized each other, and it was very clear that there was some animus kind of there. But gosh, I mean, attorneys have to be mindful of that as well. Um, right. And so, yes, we, we talked to jurors about putting on your jury face, or our, our witnesses about putting on your jury face. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're talking about things to be mindful of when you're going to trial, kind of the race to credibility and the moment that you step into a courtroom, the jury's evaluating the witness. Have you seen any difference, more so probably in state court, depending on 
where the trial's taking place, how jurors interact with a witness based on what they're wearing, how they carry themselves, or even their profession? Sure. One of the, one of the elements that I think is really important is that in situations in which you are unfamiliar, humans are unfamiliar, and by that I'm going to be referencing jurors, but in any situation where humans are unfamiliar with an environment, the first thing we begin doing is assessing it with our eyes. And so visual cues, what you're wearing, how you conduct yourself, what type of jewelry you're wearing, those are all being evaluated in very specific ways by jurors. And it's important that you are mindful of that because showing up to the courthouse with an overly expensive car is not, um, is not a great sign. Um, walking around with a, with a Starbucks cup even has its own connotations and, and there have been jurors that, that have been critical of that when we've gotten feedback from them. So because attorneys live in this environment, because witnesses become accustomed to it, sometimes they're desensitized to how, uh, how acute these evaluations are by jurors. But the visual judgments that jurors make are really, uh, are really sometimes terrifying. And so you need to be mindful of them at all times. In addition to uh, shows like, uh, like the show Lie to Me that was about microexpressions or people who play a lot of poker, uh, or people who focus on kind of law and order shows have a stronger sense of being able to uh, identify when they think people are lying. They're not able to, right? We know that based upon kind of the research within even the social science space, there's only about a 51% chance, which is just a little more than half of whether people can detect a lie or not. Hmm. But when people have this background, they have the perception of of confidence that they can see and identify a lie. And that means mannerisms on the stand can be very uh, dangerous if they're not held in check and if, if witnesses aren't aware of them. Um, we had a witness recently that had Tourette's and it was a situation that we hadn't encountered before, but it was a welcome challenge. And the first thing that we did was we addressed that the witness had Tourette's on the stand so that one of the aspects that manifested a tick and kind of a, a slight response in her neck is stress. And we knew that she was likely gonna be stressed on the stand, so we wanted to bring it up right away so that jurors were not wondering, they were not trying to gauge it as, um, as a way that she was trying to mislead the jury or lie to them, but was actually something that was kind of a, a neurological uh, challenge that she had. So that's interesting, and I, it, I've heard, and you maybe I hope you agree that you know judges and jurors we're all humans. They're just like us, and they make their judgments pretty quickly. So even if we're set for a week long trial, multiple week trial, how you present yourself from the very beginning, they're already making the judgments. Whether it's how you testify, or if you don't approach things like this, they've already made judgments against this witness. And if you don't fix it until you know 30 minutes into the testimony the judgments already been made and it's hard to correct those and same thing with the 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 judge you know if you the way you present your opening argument and the first witness you call that can totally change the trajectory of a case because we're we all we all start to lean one way or the other once we start hearing the initial facts or seeing the initial mannerisms or demeanor and if, if you don't address those early on it may be too late later on yeah, or, or how does uh, one demeanor in a temporary orders hearing, how is that evaluated when the judge knows that in all likelihood there's been some coaching that's occurred and they sure. come back and appear more polished, right? 
Um, or sometimes witnesses will will turn and try to message and communicate to the judge and the judge is focused on their computer screen because they're doing something else but the witness doesn't realize the acute hearing the judges have and so they think that the judge is tuned out and doesn't care and so then they lose kind of their their polish and their attention to the messaging and the communication and sometimes they can get indignant as to thinking that the judge isn't paying attention so there's all these kind of challenging dynamics that that are occurring um, within the courtroom based upon misassumptions and misassessments. Right. Well, Ryan, this has been very fascinating. Um, I really appreciate you appearing on our podcast today. And Absolutely. Thank you for having me, and it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. You asked me to uh, to tell you I, what my favorite movie was. I did. I was going right? to say, we end our podcast. What's your favorite divorce-related movie or TV show? Uh, it is Couples Retreat. Ah, that's um, a good one. And the reason that I like Couples Retreat is because it has what I think are good typologies of different types of couples and the dysfunctional behavior that <laughs> that occurs within each of those environments. It's a very funny movie, but it really works well if you think about who your clients are and how each of your clients and the relationships they have are uh, are kind of stereotyped within these uh, these four or five couples that are in the movie. So it's uh, it's an interesting one. I'll have to go back and look at it. I haven't watched that in a long time, but now I think I will. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Thank you.